Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of SEPAD Pod, the sectarianism proxies and desectarianization project based at Lancaster University. I'm Simon Maybon, and today I'm joined by Shadi Hamid, Senior Fellow at the Project on U.S. Relations with the Islamic World at the Brookings Institute. Shadi is someone who, whose work is incredibly wide-ranging, incredibly well-read. In particular, he's the author of Islamic Exceptionalism, How the Struggle Over Islam is Reshaping the World, published by St. Martin's Press in 2017, and also the co-editor of Rethinking Political Islam, published by Oxford. Shadi, thanks so much for giving up your time and joining us today. It's a real pleasure to have you. Yeah, hi, Simon. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's wonderful to get you on, Chad. Your, your name was one of the first that I jotted down as someone I wanted to speak to about, about contemporary Islam and, and some of the challenges that, that not only are facing the, the Muslim world, but also the study of the Muslim world. So I think we've got a, a great deal to learn from you. So thank you again. Yeah, well, and well, that puts some pressure on me, so I, I, hope I, I hope I can deliver. Well, no pressure at all, Shadi, none <laughs> okay. whatsoever. Could you tell us a little bit about how you got involved in, in these topics? What prompted your exploration of, of some of these issues, please? Yeah, so a formative moment for me was actually 9-11, and um, 9-11 kind of politicized me in a way, and... It raised a lot of questions about the relationship between the U.S. and the Middle East, and clearly something was fundamentally wrong in that relationship. And I wanted, and I started to ask more and more, well, what is it that's wrong? And looking a little bit deeper at that question, and for me, the 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 sort of puzzle of why the U.S. cannot and will not support more democratic, pluralistic governments in the Middle East was a key one. And I, so then I, then the question after that would be, well, why are, why are we as Americans so um, unwilling to support democracy? Um, and the answer was, at least in part, we're afraid of who might come to power through free and fair elections. Sure. Who are these people who might come to power through free and fair elections? Islamist movements. So for I wanted to really understand who are these Islamist groups that everyone seems so afraid of? Is that fear justified? And then really, and this became a major a major part of my work and what I have spent a big chunk of my career doing, I wanted to immerse myself in the world of Islamism. And part of that was spending a lot of time with members and leaders of Islamist movements themselves, first in Jordan, where I was living in uh, 2004, 2005, and then Egypt, and then kind of more broadly in in various parts, various parts of the of the Middle East, and um, yeah, it was fascinating, and um, <laughs> I've been doing quite a lot of that. Yeah, so that's, yeah, that's part I can of imagine. It. So, Shadi, do you remember where exactly you were when when 9/11 happened and you first heard the news? Yeah, I was actually um, I was in D.C. And I was a freshman in undergrad. Right. So my basically my second or third week of college, this happens. And here I am, you know, living away from home for the first time, trying to figure out what my identity is. And then this this historical this historical event happens. And in some ways it's a double tragedy as an American, as a Muslim. Of course. And it affected yeah. both sides of my identity as an American Muslim. So it felt in that sense, uh, 
uh, at least somewhat personal in that here were people who were claiming to be Muslim, and I, I am Muslim, and so you have to sort of get your head around that. Yeah, I can imagine it's a real existential crisis at that point, a very sort of the implosion of your the two different parts of your identities coming together at such a formative time for you. Yeah, exactly. So, exactly. And then, and then not too much later, the Iraq war happened. So, I mean, there was a lot going on at that particular, th- those few years. Yeah. So what were yeah. you studying at that point? So in undergrad, I was doing um, international affairs at, at Georgetown University. Right. So with that, a focus on the Middle East. Yeah. Sure. So that was at least a way in which you could start to think through some of these, some of these questions that you, that you had and were, were emerging at this time. Yeah, yeah, and that and Georgetown was a great place to do that. And as it as it turns out, I I have one of his books right in front of me that I'm that I'm rereading uh, right now. Uh, John Vol was one of my professors. So looking back at his book from 1982, it's called Islam: Continuity and Change in the Modern World. Right. And it just it's a reminder of how ahead of his time he was when it comes to these questions of. Islam and politics and taking religion seriously and not dismissing it as epiphenomenal. Sure. And I, so I, I, was, I was blessed to have professors like, like John Vole who kind of guided me in those early years, yeah. Great. And then, then after that, you went on and did, did graduate study. What were you looking at there? Yeah, so I, I did my master's at, at Georgetown after, uh, which was, and then in between, I did the Fulbright in Jordan. That's when right. I started really focusing on Islamist movements, specifically here, the Jordanian Muslim Brotherhood. Sure. And then af- after my master's, I did my PhD in, um, in political science at Oxford. And that focused on what exactly? So my dissertation was on um, how, how repression affects Islamist movements, if I can put it that way. And I was, fo- I was focusing in particular on the Jordanian Brotherhood and the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood. So one of the things I was exploring was, does repression have a radicalizing effect or a moderating effect? Um, and how do Islamist movements contend with waves of repression over time and different strategies of countering regime repression and to what extent they're effective in doing so? It's really, really interesting and, and really, really pertinent for, for today. Before going on, though, Shadi, can, can we just spend a, a brief moment just talking about this idea of Islamist? So for someone who's not read your work, how do you define Islamist? So I define Islamists as um, uh, those groups that believe Islam or Islamic law should play a central role in politics and public life. That would be the short definition. And I, I was, um, I tend to emphasize groups because I think when we're talking about whether particular individuals are Islamist, it gets a little bit more complicated because someone can believe in the importance of applying Sharia, but yeah. isn't necessarily an Islamist because. Um, according to most of the polling that we have, at least in the countries that I focus on, like let's say Egypt or Jordan, um, large majorities say to pollsters that they believe Sharia is central and that it should be applied to one extent or another. That doesn't mean that all of these people or that 60 or 70 or 80 percent of these populations are Islamists. So there's a second part of the definition that I usually add, 
And I think the, the first person who I think really got this definition right was uh, Michael Cook, who really um, who, who emphasized in a couple, couple of his uh, books this idea that Islamists um, are those who are at pains to construe their identity in explicitly Islamic terms. So in other words, they go, they go out of their way to define themselves politically in a particular fashion. Um, right. So that's the second step that these groups make. Because you could theoretically have have a, um, a party or a movement that believes in the importance of Islamic law, but they construe their political identity in terms of economic issues because they just think that that's more important for political life. Sure. Those groups would not be considered Islamist. Right. I think it's important, that distinction between the group and the individual. I mean, I've got... Uh, a number of, of problems and questions about polling data in the in the region that we probably don't have time to go into now. Yeah, but I think it's it's really important that that distinction between the individual and the group. But you're still left with with a great deal of work to do, though, because for me the the idea of of the Islamist group, as you're talking about, is is incredibly broad and can encapsulate groups across the, from from Iran to Lebanon, from perhaps Turkey all the way down to Yemen. Yeah, yeah, there, there, are, there are a lot of groups that I fall under this rubric. I mean, just so basically I, I do make distinctions between mainstream Islamist movements and then extremist movements, and I think that's become more important because in the policy debate here in Washington, there is a tendency under the Trump administration to blur those lines. So, for example, mainstream Islamist movements would be... Um, generally Muslim Brotherhood or Muslim Brotherhood-inspired groups that are gradualists, they're not revolutionary, sure. they participate in parliamentary politics, they accept to one degree or another procedural democracy, they believe in popular sovereignty as opposed to this very exclusive focus on divine sovereignty. And this is a major distinction with, say, Al-Qaeda or ISIS, where for them— divine sovereignty is such a key theme yeah. and popular sovereignty to them is dangerous and also un-Islamic. And this is one reason they consider the Muslim Brotherhood to have violated very key Islamic concepts because popular sovereignty in effect means that um, parliaments can pass laws where a group like ISIS would say God is the sole, the sole legislator and any attempt to have an elected parliament is essentially usurping the powers of the divine. Sure, and I think that's that's a really key point there. I think this this tension between the divine and the popular in terms of, of competing visions of sovereignty, you've got a very clear distinction there, but, but that plays out in the political realm. So can you tell us a little bit about how these groups do politics then, particularly the moderate groups? Yeah, yeah. So, well, one thing I should say, and this kind of fits into my intellectual journey, if you will, and how I like came to see see things in a particular way. So if you had talked to me maybe um, 10 years ago when I was uh, doing my PhD, I was much more of a structuralist where I didn't see religion as a prime mover. Right, okay. I saw Islamist movements as primarily political which, of sure. course, they still are, but yeah. that was my particular lens. And 
and I was I was a product of how I think most people studied political science and still do, which is to not, you know, we're not we weren't encouraged, and I think in generally in political science departments, you're not encouraged to focus too much on theology and doctrine. Yeah. But the more time that I was spending in the Middle East with um, with members and activists in these movements, I. I increasingly came to take religion seriously and, and more seriously as an independent variable, right. as something okay. that mattered in its own right. And that's a shift that I think I've seen myself take over over the past over the past years. Um, and it's really shaped my my research and moved it in a in a particular direction. And it's also I think put me open to some criticisms where. People sometimes say that I'm getting too close to essentialism, and there's always a danger when you take when you take Islam when you when you talk a lot about Islam that it sounds like you're reifying religion as like this eternal, all important thing. So I think we do have to be careful about that. Yeah. But when I was spending spending time with specifically um, members members of the Egyptian Brotherhood. We would get in these really interesting conversations of why do they do what they do, and when I would talk to them, it was clear that they weren't making a clear distinction in their own minds between what we call religion and what we call politics. That this this was an artificial categorization, which is basically you know a product in part of post enlightenment thought, where we see religion as its own category and. The sacred and the profane are two different realms of analysis and understanding, and that may be true for us as academics, but it's certainly not true for many of the folks on the ground. Um, and that that was something that I tried to contend with in a more. I, I wanted to be as intellectually honest as I could, even if it led me in perhaps problematic directions, and you know, and also. Con- also, maybe even potentially contribute to, um, unfortunately, anti—you know—anti-Muslim ideas that Muslims are always operating according to Islam. So I think again, that's where we have to be careful to not fall into that. Yeah. But you know, um, where where does religion end and politics begin? And uh, I remember one conversation in particular that I had. This was right before the Arab Spring with a mid-level Muslim Brotherhood official. And we were talking about why people join the Brotherhood, and this really this really stuck with me. And I, I talk about it still because I think it's really important. He basically said, you know, people join; they have different different factors and variables: rural urban migration, being pissed off at the U.S., underemployment. All these things matter. But he's like, for some of us, we join the Muslim Brotherhood, or she should, sorry, I should say. Um, some people join, he said, some people join the Muslim Brotherhood for a simple reason or a simpler reason, because they want to get into heaven. Sure. And um, I think that captures captures an important dynamic and an important um, motivation that at least some people have when they join Islamist movements. You can talk about all the other political science stuff and all of that matters to one degree or another. But there is this more fundamental motivation, and not for everyone who joins the Brotherhood, for, but for some. 
And I think paradise is a pretty strong motivator. And, you know, in graduate school seminars in political science, you don't tend to talk a lot about paradise. And that seems to be irrational from a kind of secular perspective. But the more I would think about it, what could be what could be more rational than doing what you can in this life in service of the next life? Like if your starting premise is that God exists and that Islam is true and that there is something called the afterlife, it's a very rational act to do as much as you possibly can to secure your afterlife. So that's why I don't even like this talk of rational versus irrational motivations. Of course, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I think part of the issue there is that when when we're trying to understand the behavior of, of individuals and groups who who work through an argument in that type of way, it's so it's so incongruent with, with some of the logics that are being used in, in certain policy circles or in certain intellectual debates that that there's a fundamental tension, there's an inability to comprehend that initial premise, which is, is purely couched in faith. And that's, that's deeply problematic. Yes, it is. And it's not something that you can just explain to people and say, hey, you have to get religion, because if someone doesn't... I mean, it's possible for, for people who are born and raised and have... Um, their intellectual development has happened, has happened in very, a very secular context... I think it is a big jump to make sometimes. And it's hard for people sometimes to relate to these concepts. So I think that we really have to go out of our way to try to to grasp these concepts. Um, And it doesn't come easily to everyone. And some people are never going to be convinced that religion matters all that much and they'll see it as a kind of false consciousness or there are other things that are driving them more fundamentally, and they're just using religious language to express what are basically secular de- desires and needs. And you still, hear, I still hear that a lot. And I think that that doesn't just apply to conversations around the Muslim Brotherhood, but also around extremist groups like ISIS. And you might recall this endless debate in you know 2015 and 2016. You know oh, these ISIS leaders who are talking about these very extremist religious concepts, they can't possibly believe what they're saying, that there's something cynical and instrumentalizing and that they are simply using and abusing Islam for political ends. And where, where you could look at it, in reverse, that they are using, they are using and abusing politics for what they consider to be Islamic ends. So their ultimate ends could, in fact, be religious. And we can have a debate about that, and it's, still, it's complicated because it's not one or the other. But um, I just remember getting in a lot of those types of conversations, um, and that fit into the whole idea that, oh, well, these are people who used to be Baathists. They were, they were senior officials in Saddam Hussein's regime, so these are not fundamentally religious people. They're just kind of jumping on the bandwagon and being very cynical about it, which I just think was a very problematic lens. Yeah, I, I certainly agree with you on this. And I think that what people have to remember is that context is absolutely key. Context, be it in a, in a group sense or even an individual sense, because in this case, 
I'm sure there were a number of Ba'athists who were instrumentally using the, the yeah. Daesh rhetoric, but there were also a, a large number of people who were in pursuit of paradise. Yes, and, exactly. Yeah, and I think that that's really important. Shadi, I want to push this conversation a little bit further to, to ask about the role of sects in all of this. What, where do you see sectarianism fitting into, into some of these questions? So I think that I probably share some of your frustrations about how this debate has de- developed over the years. And I think that, you know, how much more can be said about sectarianism? I think there is quite a bit more, but it has to be done in a different way. And, um, uh, you know, so one thing that I'm, I'm looking at more is Sunni Islamism, versus Shia Islamism. And even that is obviously a simplification. Yeah. Uh, but but I think that it's interesting that many of us who work on Islamist movements were very focused on Sunni Islamist movements. Sure. And Muslim Brotherhood this and Muslim Brotherhood that and you know and then the Shia Islamist parties or movements don't really get as much attention. Obviously Hezbollah does because of the geopolitical implications there. Yeah. But then there are then there are groups and parties that have not received a whole a great deal of study, like um, the Dawa party in Iraq mm-hmm. or um, or what used to be Skiri and now is Iski and I'm it's probably got some new acronym now also in yeah. Iraq. But also um, and this is a Sunni movement, but it doesn't get much attention because it's still working in a largely Shia context, which is the Iraqi Muslim Brotherhood, or what would become the Iraqi Islamic Party. So actually, I think Iraq has a lot of interesting trends going on, but because Iraq always seems to have an asterisk, where because of the the U.S. invasion of 2003 and the kind of artificial development, if you will, of that country's politics and because of, I think, what many many look at as the bad politics surrounding Iraq, we, are, we, don't, we don't treat Iraq as an equal case study when we look at Islamist movements. Yeah. Um, but just more broadly, just to stay on the sectarian theme— is to, first of all, the question would be: To what extent are Shia Islamist movements and Sunni Islamist movements different? What makes them different? What are their um, commonalities? And it's interesting because if you look at the post nineteen seventy nine context, so the Iranian Revolution happens, and then you have um, early on, you have and. It, the Iranian, um, the Iranian leaders, um, Khomeini and, and, and others, went out of their way to not alienate Sunni movements. And they saw Sunni Islamists as a potential, as potential allies to be courted. Exactly. And that was in the early 1980s. And it's interesting to look back and see how some Sunni movements were very inspired and influenced. And one person in particular who was very very pro-Iranian revolution, and it's somewhat ironic in retrospect, um, is Rashid Anushi of the Nahda party. And now you wouldn't even dream of him saying anything positive about the Iranian model. But at the time, he he especially liked the the leftist and anti-imperialist and and, um, 
sort of let's fight for the oppressed kind of themes that you saw in the Iranian revolution. And that was in a different point in Rashid Hanushi's life. And But he would sour on the Iranian revolution when he saw, as many Islamists did in the 1980s, that this was becoming a more and more authoritarian model and one that was intolerant of opposition, and also one that they realized was maybe more explicitly Shia than they originally thought. Mm. And then you have a situation, too, where Iran um, becomes closer to the Assad regime in the 1980s, and this is a time when the Assad regime is destroying and repressing and killing members of the Syrian Muslim Brotherhood and basically erasing the Syrian Muslim Brotherhood. So you have these geopolitical developments which don't don't have a lot to do with sect per se. And they act but they do shape the sectarian dynamics of this idea of Iran making common cause over time with a non-Sunni regime. The non-Sunni regime here, of course, being the Hafez al-Assad regime. Yeah. Um, so. I think what what's interesting to support that argument is is what happened in 2006 as well with with uh, the, the uh, Lebanon war and the amount of support that Hezbollah got from, from Arab constituencies across the region, uh, not only Shia groups, but, but Sunni groups as well. And if you spoke to people at the time, the the group's leader Hassan Nasrallah and Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, the Iranian president, yeah. were some of the most popular figures in the region, in spite of their their competing um, or, or somewhat different sectarian position. Yeah, exactly. So these geopolitical aspects can take precedence, and I think also if you look at Sunni Islamists and Shia Islamists. Their Islamism, their shared Islamism can take precedence over sect as well. So in the early 1980s, there was a sense among Sunni Islamists that, oh, we have more in common with Shia Islamists than we do with Sunni secularists. So there's different ways that these kinds of overlapping identities can play out. But I think you're right that we see in the mid-2000s, that was kind of the... um, uh, that's when I, I think people like Ahmadinejad and, and Hezbollah uh, and, and Nasrallah specifically could be quite popular. I wonder if that could be possible today because the sectarian elements have become so prominent. I mean, they might be subsiding in some ways, but if you look at the Arab Spring period, I think that's where there was even the souring on uh, the souring on Iran, I think, continued and intensified because of Iran's role in suppressing the Syrian revolution. Sure. And I, I just wonder, I wonder if the time has passed for someone like Nasrallah to really be seen as an Arab figure who can transcend sect, that perhaps mm-hmm. too much has happened and too much blood has been spilled, with sectarianism playing an important role in that to one degree or another. You know, so, yeah, um, yeah I, I wonder, I wonder... If if there are leaders who can kind of still speak to a kind of cross-sectarian identity in a way they maybe could have in the mid-2000s. And I think that's where we see context being absolutely key. Context, um, socioeconomic context, but also time and, and space. So I, I think, like, like you say, post-Arab uprisings, I think it's incredibly difficult to view uh, Hezbollah and Iran as 
as having that that capacity to draw support from from their Sunni counterparts because of that support for for Bashar al-Assad and the bloodshed. So I, I, yeah. I certainly echo your point. Context is key here. Yeah, but th- but then again, so the, Iran is making some efforts and to, with some success to become closer to Qatar, and um, Qatar obviously being. Um, a Sunni, a Sunni regime, but one that is also supportive of Sunni Islamists abroad. So that that's an interesting development, and it speaks to the fact that the sectarian divide is maybe seen as the number one divide in the Middle East. But I think there's an argument to be made that an intra intra Sunni divides are more important. And here I'm talking primarily about the divide between the UAE and Saudi Arabia on one hand and Qatar and Turkey on the other. And the divide here is about the role of Islam in public life, but from within, from within Sunni Islam. Yeah. And between uh, pro-Islam, pro-brotherhood versus anti-brotherhood and Saudi Arabia and the UAE see the Muslim Brotherhood as probably along with Iran as their number one geopolitical enemy. And Qatar and Turkey have a different view about this, obviously. And this gets back to the importance of religion as being quite fundamental, because when people talk about the Qatar crisis that's within the GCC, it's obviously partly geopolitical, but I think that there is a strong, strong religious component to it, that here are three countries in particular, Saudi Arabia, UAE, and Qatar, that have fundamentally different conceptions of Islam's relationship to the state. So I would say that Saudi Arabia and the UAE have a very stated—they subscribe to a a very aggressively statist Islam, that Islam should be subordinated before the state, and everything is in service of regime survival and state legitimacy. Now, Qatar Qatar still subscribes to a kind of statist Islam, but it's quite different in that they don't have an ideological objection to, to Sunni Islamist movements of the Muslim Brotherhood ilk. Yeah. Um... And uh, anyway, there's, there's, there's quite a lot that can be said there, but I think the big point here is that um, intra-Sunni intra Islam divides are in many ways taking precedence over the kind of standard Shia-Sunni sectarian divide that I think most people focus on. That's really fascinating, and, and you're right, there's a great deal to say, and we could spend a, a great deal longer talking about this, but Shadi, I'm conscious we've taken up a great amount of your time already. So let's wrap this up. I want to say thank you so much for taking your time. It's been absolutely fascinating to hear your thoughts on all of this. And um, I look forward to seeing how your your project with Peter Mandeville on Islam in statecraft progresses. It's really, really fascinating and timely stuff. Well, thank you, Simon. Great to be with you. I really enjoyed this conversation. Hope to stay in touch and talk more about these issues in the future. Thank you for coming on, Shadi. So until the next one, thanks very much. Okay, great. Bye.